Welcome to the AD Aesthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, the Decorative Arts Editor of Architectural Digest. Today, I'm joined by two celebrated men, Hamish Bowles, the European Editor-at-Large for American Vogue, and Guido Toroni, the interiors and fashion photographer, to celebrate their big, beautiful new book, The World of Federico Fourquet, Italian Fashion, Interiors, Gardens. Published by Rizzoli, it is a bedazzling polychrome extravaganza, a deep dive into the personal style, professional creativity, and ebullient personality of their friend Fourquet, a top-flight Italian couturier of the 1950s and 60s who gave up dressing the world's most beautiful women at the height of his genius to transform himself into an interior decorator of uncommon refinement as well as a garden impresario, producing projects that have delighted readers of AD since the 1970s. Fourquet, who recently turned 89, is still hard at work, decorating rooms, tending to one of Europe's most inspiring private gardens, and designing a forthcoming museum exhibition in Naples, his hometown. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Hamish and Guido. One of the things that really struck me about the new book about Federico Fourquet is it's, it's, it's almost less of a career guide or career journey as it is, it's like sitting in a group with a bunch of friends, largely because of the contributions, the essays in the book from people who have known and loved him for so many years. Was that initially the plan for the book was sort of to drop the reader in the middle of a um, almost a, a little family celebration. Well, I think one of the many extraordinary things about Federico Fourquet is his friendship circle. You know, it's so much a part of his character. He's this extraordinary life-enhancing person who's <laughs> relentlessly social in so many <laughs> aspects of his life and has been since childhood. And so that was always a component. I, w- I will say, as we were edging towards the, <laughs> the moment when things need to be sent off to the printers, you know, those, those irksome deadlines that writers face, there were, there were quite a number of calls from Federico saying, Hamish, senti, senti, listen, listen, I've just been speaking to Joel and I really feel I've asked him to write something. So there were quite a lot of, uh, the, the, the contributions of the friends amplified somewhat through the process, but it was such, it was a sort of wonderful component, I think, because, you know, so many people had so many wonderful things to, to say about him in so many different aspects and facets of his life, uh, whether it be, you know, his his beginnings in decorating or how profoundly his work and his life have been shaped by his childhood and ancestral roots in Naples, for instance, mm-hmm. as well as an, an overview of his of his fashion decorating, gardening, collecting lives. So I felt that the book should be sort of, I felt that he was so sui generis as a subject, mm. that it would be 
fun to reflect that. But of course, the the contributions of the friends were also very much driven by by Federico himself. And I I love the fact that they're pan generational. You know, you have right. someone like Ginevra Elkan, who's the granddaughter of you know one of his closest friends, and Allegra Caracciolo. Agnelli, who was his sort of muse in the 60s and whose debutante dress he made and so on. So I, I love the fact that it was, you know, it really reflected his world, which is completely pan-generational and global mm. <laughs> and, you know, has all these sort of wonderful aesthetic people in it. And it's fascinating to me how 4K has made an impact not only on fashion, but interior design and also gardening. Um, seemingly without similar parallel in the fashion world, the sort of intensity of his gaze into those three different worlds combined. I think that there are a great many designers out there who, of course, by their very nature, are aesthetic people. And, you know, they, they apply those aesthetics to the way they live and what they surround themselves by, and that could be interiors, it could be gardens and so mm. on. But I think that Federico's really unique in that he sort of had a, a second fully rounded, fully fledged career decorating largely for friends, you know. Mm. That, was, that was what particularly struck me the first time when I'd sort of embarked on the project and I arrived in Rome, I think after the Milan collections, I had a sort of uh, 48 hour breather between the, the Milan and Paris shows one season. And I sort of got, I got off the train from Milan and got swept up by Federico and basically frog marched across Rome. <laughs> um, Guido will tell you how absolutely indefatigable Federico still is at 89. I mean, I was completely exhausted at the end of it all, but I mean, we went from one sort of palazzo to one sort of enchanting apartment. And, and the striking thing was how fond everyone was of, of Federico. I mean, they all just adored him. They were so thrilled that the book was happening and the, the celebration of his work and his eye and they were all so tremendously supportive and and you know the, the camaraderie between Federico and all the clients who really were friends was something I hadn't really experienced I mean I kept mm. thinking I can only imagine if a decorator my side of the pond took me on a marching tour of clients how very different that experience might be <laughs> i think you're right i think there's something about and guido i please chime in there's something about the fact that the book is such an italo-centric cultural uh, exploration there is something different about the spirit than it would be with a british designer or with an american designer there's something so incredibly open-armed about the book and the career and how people relate to him. Yes, uh, I think this thing is is uh, is real and uh, it re it reflects exactly the the three passions of Federico all together. Um, the beauty of uh, of his dresses, the gardens, and the interiors. And in fact, it was very very fun for me to to take part of this big project. And I'm grateful to, to Hamish 
and we worked really good together as we as we said as we were saying and everything came out very naturally um it was a uh, very moving uh, staying beside federico and knowing a little bit better and um it was very fun because in the morning we we woke up with this incredible loud music mu- classical music everywhere in the house in chetona with federico all the cats the housekeeper rosa he was trying to call her everywhere it was a magical moment for me and uh, we worked very well all together Guido, had you ever photographed any of Federico's interiors before? Not, not before. I was, um, since he's a very good friend of my family, I was always, you know, uh, listening to his name around, but we never met. We had the chance to, to meet the, the previous year, last, uh, two years ago, before the book in Grazzano. He was there and we met finally. And then one year after, Hamish came out with the idea of doing this book on his life on his career and of course Federico was very happy to to start this adventure all together. So why did you choose Federico? I think Federico sort of chose me. I can't quite decide. <laughs> it's rather it's rather um muddled in my memory. But I, I tell you I I had Federico Federico's name had been this kind of sort of mystic presence in my life. Whenever I saw coverage of his clothes or I saw extant examples of them, the haute couture that he designed in Rome from the, from the, for a decade really, from the early 60s to the early 70s, I was struck by their consummate elegance and sort of elan and style. And so I was fascinated by, by the clothes. And then I was almost equally fascinated by all these stories, uh, Valle Pincioli, the, the, the house in Chitona, uh, where out of a sort of tumble down farmhouse and a couple of, of barns and some terraced arable fields, pastures, he'd created this legendary, legendarily beautiful landscape, which I was very, very, keen to see, you know, I'd heard about that landscape and the house from, from friends, from mutual friends like Madison Cox and so on, who, who had been, and I was lucky enough to have met Federico for the first time at Ein uh, Casimou, Morella Ragnelli's sort of amazing property in, in Marrakesh that I was documenting for, for Vogue, for a story in Vogue. Madison Cox had worked very closely with her creating the gardens in that case uh, out of an area that had really been uh polo pony grazing fields and that is an extraordinary garden i was i was able to visit it only once and i it changed me a a great deal yes well it was a you know it was a magical thing and they were they were lucky in a way uh for for some sad reasons because so there was so much construction going on in Marrakesh at the time that lots of these gardens were being destroyed. So they were able to, you know, they were able to plant sort of mature vines and mm. palm trees and so on that, that were being taken up for sort of relentless uh, property development elsewhere in the city and create this absolute paradise that, you know, when you go really seems to have been there for decades, if not centuries, as <laughs> this established atmosphere and so that was a that was a really wonderful wonderful house and 
Federico was in uh, Morella's house party and was so entertaining and such an incredible raconteur and had so much spirit and liveliness. And we sort of determined then that I would eventually come to Chitona. <laughs> I, I, I would say that he is almost as peripatetic as I and traveling the world in this sort of, <laughs> this sort of uh, amazingly frenetic way. So our paths actually couldn't cross because whenever I was in Rome, he would be with um, the Queen of Belgium or something, <laughs> <laughs> um, or with the David Vey in the south of France or Morella on Corsica. I mean, it was really quite extraordinary. So it took us about a decade for our paths actually <laughs> to align. And that was when I went to Chitona and I, and I saw that, of course, it, it lived up to the promise and, and rather exceeded it because you couldn't imagine that in the 80s when Federico and his late partner had, had found it, it, it really was a, you know, it was a farm and, and these terraces were, were fields. And now, of course, they're these extraordinarily elaborate pergolas and garden gazebos built with almost Edwardian ambition. Mm. And, and beautifully planted. And of course, at the beginning, it was very much Federico's partner's project. Matteo Spinola. Matteo Spinola, quite so. Uh, and Federico had, a, had some disdain for the local countryside. <laughs> um, he, had, he had a place on Capri and um, an apartment in London at the time. And that, that suited his sort of jet set um, <laughs> cafe society. Um, itinerary a little bit better, but he soon sort of came to love Chitona. And um, I think that was also nurtured by Russell Page, you know, mm -hmm. the legendary landscape architect, a British garden designer who came as a friend and did some work at the house and made, drifted around making rather marvellous and uh, forward-thinking, far-thinking suggestions on plantings and so on. And I think with that inspiration, Federica really got turned on to the idea of the possibilities of gardening mm. and that you could be just as creative as you could be as a couturier or as a collector even. And, you know, he's very involved with uh, the festival at Grazzano, which, which Guido can tell you far more about as it uh, relates to a, a family house of Guido's. Yes, we did this presentation in, in Grazzano and uh, Federico, as you said, he was, he was quite unstoppable, let's say. So <laughs> the, the, um, they were all online to get their, their signature from Federico, their dedication, and everyone, everyone wanted the dedication he started. And uh, I was saying to, to people that he's never tired, as, as Hamish said. We were at the end of the day, we were shooting the whole of the day. He was coming, you know, speaking with everyone and going around and jump on a taxi to go to an appointment. Then he came back to the shooting and speak again. And, you know, he was very, very frenetic in a certain <laughs> sense. And then at night, Hamish and I, we went all together to, to eat. And then he, we went back uh, home. And he started, okay, what do we do now? And we were <laughs> looking at, it, at each other saying, maybe we, we go to sleep. No, come on, we can't sleep now. No, please, we have to sleep, Federico. <laughs> He's never tired. And I said, why, Federico? How can you, uh, with, you know, being 19 year, 90 years old, 
uh, I'm 30 years old. I can't imagine how. And he said, you know, when, when I like to do something, I can do it without sleeping. I can do it the whole of the day, every day, forever. <laughs> it said, fantastic. It's, it, it's true. It's, it's true. He was, he's, really, he's truly indefatigable and very inspiring in that way. And he has a great mm. curiosity about things and is very mm. up to date on what's going on in the world. And I think, yes, we would get back from these wonderful dinners where we had had, you know, nonstop amazing anecdotes about the great and the good of 20th and early 21st century <laughs> cafe society. You know, then you would get back and then you'd realize that, I mean, towards the end of one of my stays, I realized that there was a room that I hadn't even known existed. And believe me, I'm a, a real house snoop. You know, <laughs> I am up there in attics, opening jib doors, you know. But even I had found that there was a room that had been a secret to me and I opened it up and then I realized that it had all these scrapbooks and albums. I mean, oh, it, was, God. it was dedicated to them and bound <laughs> copies. So, I mean, you can imagine, I think very early on in the process, what was one of the really, really exciting things was understanding that Federico is as much of a pack rat as I am. He has never thrown anything away. And whether that is you know, the program of every single concert, Broadway show, West End show, Italian music festival that he's ever attended since childhood, every photograph uh, beautifully presented in photograph albums, every fashion sketch he's ever done from childhood. You know, we found he's kept all the fashion sketches that he did in, in a little diary from 1940 when he would have been nine or ten and every day instead of putting in an entry he's just done a different costume fashion or costume design <laughs> then you know during the war obviously paper was at a premium and then you find him sketching fashion designs all over his greek homework <laughs> and then and then not quite sure what the teachers would have made of that and then uh, not content with that he's then getting these sort of uh, what would they be sort of mimeographed sheets from his father's sort of investments sent by the bank, you know, sort of with the stocks and shares details, and he's just sketching all over those too. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by, by where people come from and how that has an impact on their, their taste, their vision. What do you think, in, in working on this book and knowing Federico as you, as you both do, what about Naples has carried through in his fashions? in his gardens, in his interiors. Is there some thread of influence from being Neapolitan? I mean, uh, Guido can answer this in his own way, of course. I I'd love to know what an Italian thinks. I mean, for me as an outsider, uh, you know, Naples is such a sort of thrilling place. It's a, it's a port city that has an edge to it. It has so many layers of the most extraordinary history. You know, you're so connected to an antique Roman past, to greater ancient Greece. And, you know, layered on top of that, you have this extraordinary Baroque city. Yeah. And then you have a city that has a lot of kind of dynamic sort of 50s edge to it. Yeah. And I, I would say that in Federico's approach to decorating and design, there was a great sense of classical equilibrium. There's a real 
classical harmony, certainly in the palette of his decorating, there's a great deal of a sense of, of Roman antiquity that comes through a little bit in the clothing, but of course, his work also reflects the dynamism of textile design in the, in the 60s and those kind of really eye-popping colours and mm. bold pop and op art uh, motifs that he uses in his work a lot. But I think, you know, there's a classicism, there are a lot of togas, there are all these kind of one-shoulder dresses, there are sort of jalabas and kaftans, and I think a lot of these garments that you see in the, the murals of Pompeii or the extraordinary mosaics and sculptures and ceramics and glass, even in the, in the really electrifying archaeological museum in Naples. So I think that connects to it. And certainly, you know, the wonderful thing about Naples for me is that you have these real extremes side by side. You know, you have these extraordinary crumbling Baroque or neoclassical palaces, mm -hmm. and then you have kind of these rather Dickensian side streets with the washing hanging up in the, right. you know, from window to window. And so I think it's that, it's that mix is very exciting. But I certainly think that the classicism of, of um, uh, the greater ancient Greek uh, empire and the, the early Roman empires layered with Baroque and neoclassicism that, you know, exists throughout Italy, but in a very unique combustible <laughs> com combination in Naples, I think. But I don't know, Guido, what do, you, what do you think about the power of Naples? I agree, there's a strong uh, presence of Naples in his life and his, in his memories that every time comes out because when you start speaking with Federico, every, every two or three minutes he mentioned his life, his youth, his... Uh, is uh, passed in uh, in, in, Nap in Naples in um, Posillipo, his, his house, the the beauty of the sea that he could go down downstairs uh, and uh, you know have a jump in the sea every time he wanted, and uh, the colors, the Vesuvio. I think his personality also reflects a lot the the, the nearness of the volcano because mm. it's <laughs> it's explosive in a certain sense, and also in the house I was very impressed by that room uh, within, with, where there's uh, the big uh, painting of the volcano, of the Vesuvio, the eruption, l'eruzione, and every tone is made around that, that beautiful paint that is in the family, his mm. family's since generation. So Mongiardino with, with Federico did all that beautiful walls painted that now is in, in this beautiful room dedicated, in fact, to, to Naples, called uh, the Neapolitan Room, that Hamish and I had the, the, we had the pleasure of, you know, seeing the construction of, of the whole room, because mm. he was doing this room as an homage to his passion for Naples. He, he, he tried to, you know, to put every, every collection, every piece of furniture, everything that reminded him of, of his uh, youth in Naples. That room is exciting for me because, you know, I saw a lot of those elements installed in, in Federico's Roman apartment. So the amazing Vesuvian picture and the panels, the trompe l'oeil panels that Renzo <laughs> Mongiardino had created for an earlier apartment and that he subsequently moved to his current 
Roman apartment. And then, you know, he took those elements out, a lot of family furniture that had come from the uh, Palazzo Zervolos, which was in the family from the 1830s through to the turn of the century. And then, you know, those elements moved to the house in Posilipo above the sea, where incidentally, when Federico was swimming, he was swimming over the long since flooded uh, ruins of ancient Roman houses. You know, the sea had risen. So you had this incredible sort of Atlantis idea that the house was sort of built, the, the villa was really built on a, on a cliff above the water. And you know, you could wander down through pathways and so on. But looking down from above, you can see the mosaic floors of ancient Roman uh, villas under the under the water. So I think as a child, that's so, uh, I mean, as an impressionable adult, that's a very moving thought. But as a child, it must really have been this sort of magical, lost Atlantis sort of world. Funny you say that because it reminds me of a photograph in the book that struck me just for the beauty of the object. And that is a, a tabletop with micro mosaic boxes, all sort of crowded in, in sort of formation. Yes. Well, you know, Federico is nothing if not a collector. I mean, he's a real collector, you know. <laughs> there are things that he's passionate about. I remember quite early on, Guido and I were, were in the Roman apartment and everywhere we looked, we could see urns. And I mean, once I started looking for urns, I just went sort of berserk because they were at, at every turn, they were in a micro mosaic. They were in a, a marquetry door of, a, of an ancient commode. They were in an 18th century etching. They were in an 18th century ceramic. They were in a, a first century Roman ceramic. So at one point I said to Guido, wouldn't it be fun if, if we just photographed every single one that we can sort of find and do an amazing sort of collage page. And one of the things, of course, was these micro mosaics, which also had, you know, extraordinary urns and so on on them, and Tatsi. And that passion sort of continues. And he's also finding new ways of sort of displaying them. So he worked with these amazing contemporary bronze, gilt bronze design designers and craftspeople and designed these wonderful little kind of um, trees and the, the branches have hooks from which you can attach uh, um, micro mosaics that were once intended as sort of ladies locket pendants. And so, I, you know, I think what's, I'm sure Guido will also attest to this, you know, what we found so particularly inspiring is that someone who's, you know, celebrated his 89th birthday this year in times of COVID through which he has remained undaunted and uh, joyful. He just is always looking at the future, even if he's referencing the past and nostalgic for a lot of things. You know, he has just been commissioned to reimagine the way the Capodimonte porcelain is presented in the Capodimonte Museum in Naples, for instance, which is a two or three year project, which he's, you know, gladly taken on. And I'm very excited to see his touch and taste applied mm -hmm. to the, the display of these ceramics, which are so right. exquisite, but, but have often presented a challenge for academic curators right. in museum situations, you know. So he really is um, a favoured city son. Yes, he is. I think, I think Naples is very proud to claim him as their own. Mm -hmm. And I must say that, you know, Federico is sort of uh, far more known in Italy, but still in, rather, in a rather sort of esoteric world, I would say. And so it's been 
it's been very exciting to kind of bring his extraordinary taste and, and, and world to a sort of what I hope will be a much more a broader, more sort of global public and just to sort of celebrate someone who I think has really been a sort of unsung hero. You know, he's been worshipped by his friendship group, but sort of un unknown beyond that. And I think part of that was also his own instincts, you know, all through the 60s when designers were beginning to license their name and do all these things, he just felt that was in poor taste. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, what he liked doing was designing beautiful clothes and dressing his, the women he loved uh, and uh, beautifying them. And he didn't want to put his name to anything that he hadn't really designed himself. You know, although he collaborated with great textile designers and milliners and shoemakers and jewelry designers, it was always him pushing the, the narrative and the, telling them really what he wanted and, and, uh, and sketching and drawing it and, mm. uh, as, his, as his extraordinary archive of sketches attest. So he, he really was a one-man band. He didn't want to take on assistance, design assistance. He never wanted to delegate the creative process. And I think that whilst, you know, in, in Rome, certainly a designer like Valentino, who was dressing a very, very similar clientele, was unshy about uh, getting his name out there and licensing sunglasses and, and second lines and third lines and so on, and creating a very different kind of global brand in a way. And Federico was just very happy to be living his life. And I think he had a wonderful uh, and, and has a wonderful life and, and didn't really want to sacrifice the demands and pressures that would have come with steering a, a global brand that was more of a kind of design conglomerate. So that also is kind of, <laughs> is kind of unique. You know, I think it, it probably helps that he had a safety net of sorts in his family resources, mm. which probably gave him less of a hungry ambition than other designers might have enjoyed, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> so he could afford to be, uh, have a little more of a dilettante approach. Um, having said that, you know, when, when he focuses on something, there is nothing of the dilettante about it. Right. It's extraordinary. And, you know, he has no assistant even in the decorating. It's just him, you know, choosing or designing the fabrics and finding, his, finding antiques and um, designing contemporary furniture and collaborating with great Italian craftspeople. So it's the, he's, he's this one-man band. It's really remarkable. Why did uh, the fashion aspect of his career take a backseat to interior design? Well, the reason for it, as Federico's explained to me, is that he had adored his fashion life in the 50s when he was working for, uh, notably for Cristobal Balenciaga, for the designer Fabiani, <laughs> indirectly, shall we say, for the designer Simonetta, who was Fabiani's wife, for Princess Irene Galitzin, mm -hmm. for whom he developed the soon known as Palazzo Pajamas, which became a kind of staple of early 60s at home, at Palazzo dressing, you know. And then he loved launching his own house and, as I've said, dressing his friends, fitting his friends. He loved that collaborative experience. And he had, you know, he really dressed the most glamorous women uh, who were then in Rome and Italy and, um, in fact, around the world, you know, from Babe Paley to Morella Agnelli and 
Sophia Loren. I mean, it's just sort of extraordinary. And the Queen, Queen Ina of Spain, I mean, um, Princess Paula of Belgium, you know, the list goes on. And I think at the turn of the 70s, and really after the great student riots of 1968, and that whole zeitgeist shift to a kind of youth culture and to the idea of fashion not drifting down from a palazzo life, mm. but surging up from the streets in this kind of volcanic way. Um, you know, he was very sensitive to that zeitgeist. He really understood that the world was moving and that probably fashion was going to be much more about ready to wear and a kind of nimble way of being able to create and consume clothes um, and fashion. And, you know, he had experimented with uh, boutique collections and so on, which were, but they're still, you know, exquisitely made. I mean, the seams are finished by hand and so on, you know, right. it's, it's really like diffusion haute couture rather than a Saint Laurent Rive Gauche, you know, right. when you have a, a manufacturer producing things. And I think that's when he just felt that he didn't really understand the ready to wear. He hadn't come up, he hadn't had that training. It was a whole other discipline that he'd need to teach himself. He didn't want to bring anyone else in, you know, he didn't want to have another design assistant. He didn't want to have another point of view. Right. It was his aesthetic direction. And so I think he just felt really, and really he was still at the crest of his career as a couturier, but he could see that the winds of fashion were changing and, and that he probably wasn't going to be a part of it. And so he sort of stepped down, you know, I and mean, he paid all his staff off in the sort of gentlemanly fashion and just shuttered his, shuttered his couture house and almost accidentally fell into decorating. You know, as Guido has explained, um, he'd collaborated with um, Renzo Mongiardino mm -hmm. on a project for his own apartment and you know, was a tremendous collector and obviously had a great sense of how to arrange objects and, and dispose things, furniture in an apartment or a house. And he designed for Allegra Caracciolo Agnelli. He designed an apartment for her, which um, got a lot of attention, not least from Andy Warhol, <laughs> who felt that there was, that, that it was astounded that the walls had been created from porphyry. Uh, when in fact it was a it was a, a trompe l'oeil porphyry textile that Federico oh. had developed with Zumsteg, so I think I think with the endorsement of Morella and her cousin Allegra Agnelli and approval from Warhol, he really felt sort of empowered to move forward in that way. And I think you know really what happened was that so many of his friends and so many of his clients at the Couture really understood his taste level and could see the way that his own apartments had been decorated and arranged mm. and Chitona as it was coming together uh, in the early 80s and, and just sort of asked him to help, you know, and that's really how it started. So it really is this sort of extended friendship circle. It's an amazing sort of um, midlife career shift and, mm. and a very effective one. And, you know, what's wonderful is that it's now pan-generation and you have Marella Agnelli's granddaughter who'd always admired her mother her grandmother's interiors working with him on her own places which have a very kind of something of that thread but a but a very 2020 mm -hmm. dynamic to them. 
Guido, what was your favorite interior to photograph or did you have one? Well, probably <clears throat> Cetona, probably because it was really his, his essence and there were, you know, all his memories and there's a beautiful photo that we did with Emish uh, mostly at the end of the book where is his stairs going back to, to the first floor where, where his bedroom is. And the stairs are full of photos he did in his life. Um, so all his friends, all his, the people he met, the people he dressed. And every, every photo has a, a little, you know, description. So it's really as, you know, seeing his life through the stairs. So it was really moving. And since I really like emotions and probably um, photography, I like photography because you can, you know, block, you can fix, you can try to fix an emotion. Uh, th that house, that place, it's full of, of emotion, his emotions. So probably I like the most uh, Cetona. And, and also the, I was shocked because we were trying to photograph these dresses uh, we found with Hamish um, in, in some way, in a different way, let's say. Uh, so we ended up um, not in a studio that was a bit, you know, scientific, too scientific. We wanted to, to give a bit of, of um, emotion and again. And so we found interesting, we shoot some of the dresses in the houses that Federico um, decorated and it was incredible how they melt completely in the space uh, even if they were on a, uh, not on a real person they were you know we shot them in, in still life so it was not easy but it came out very well I think because there's a soul in both in, in, in the houses in interiors and in the dresses so it, it was very it was very nice Guido Hamish, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking about your new book, The World of Federico 4K. I really appreciate it. And it's a magnificent production. Thank you so much for having us. It's been such a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. The Aesthete is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wartzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com. <laughs>